Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. I don't think Boris Johnson will ever actually fully recover from this righteous sense of public anger. Will she buy that it was a work event or will she see it as illegal? Stop doing COVID, theatre, vaccine passports, masks, stuff that doesn't work and focus on what does work. The true tragedy at the heart of this, which is how is Carrie going to peel off £112,000 worth of golden wallpaper from number 10? Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Will Boris Johnson cling on? That's the question dominating British politics right now, and no wonder. Reports that 100 Downing Street staff were invited to drinks in the Number 10 garden at the height of the May 2020 lockdown to take advantage of the lovely weather, in the words of the official email invitation, have caused huge public anger. The House of Commons over recent days has heard numerous stories from Labour MPs and others telling of the very real trials and tribulation of ordinary people during lockdown, of the damage caused and the contrast with the cheese and wine garden parties that were then happening at the heart of government. Pity that so many of the MPs now recounting those horrific stories of human suffering were not only in favour of full-on lockdown, but wanted the restrictions to be even tighter. The Prime Minister, though, is in grave political danger, more so than at any time in his premiership. While some voters will say, so what?, Among many others, public anger is off the scale. So, dear co-pilot, you're fresh from writing one of the most powerful columns I've read in a long time, in Wednesday's Telegraph and, of course, available on our website. So I'll put to you the question I began with. Can Boris Johnson cling on? Ooh, I don't know, where are we? If we're going to NHS sums, that's the £36 billion figure, isn't it, Liam? Well... He may not be quite on death row, but he's certainly wearing a pretty hefty electronic tag, certainly until the May local elections co-pilot, which I think now will be seen as a referendum on Boris's premiership. So judging by the slightly wave-faced looks on the Tory backbench MPs' faces in the Commons yesterday, I think they're all sort of sitting there as the Prime Minister was trying to explain how he thought he was at a work event when it was a bring a bottle party in the Downing Street garden. You could see them thinking, how the hell are we going to be explaining this so-called work event on the doorsteps? I think there are a few issues here, Liam. I think that we can all think back, can't we, to what we were doing on the 20th of May 2020 when this work event, 19 sets of inverted commas, happened. People were very jumpy. We were following these very strict rules, not allowed to have anyone who wasn't a member of our own household in the house or even in the garden. I had a friend who remembered driving to visit her parents and having elderly parents having to shout at them through the window, not even able to go and sit in the back garden with them. And and, and under the national COVID restrictions, then only two people were permitted to meet outside while staying at least two metres apart. And that, Liam, you you might recall, that was going to be the first day of GCSEs for many kids. Yeah, huge day for a lot of kids. Huge day, which was cancelled. Everyone was being bombarded with instructions to stay home, stay safe, Everybody I knew pretty much was being very obedient. We were all in it together. And now, of course, there is this huge, I think, really genuine disgust. I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, journalists blabbing about it. I think there's absolute 
discussed about it. And I think the one of the issues, of course, is the terrible hypocrisy when so many were sacrificing their the final minutes on earth with their parents. I mean, it could not be more serious, this draconian withdrawal of the people's liberties. But one of the things that really gets to me, I suppose, is that all the people who attended that party in the Downing Street Garden, they knew full well, Liam, that COVID was not the plague, not even close. They all had access to the data. They were not scared to attend a boozy party with lots of people because it wasn't a risk for them. And I went back co-pilot and I looked at that day 20th of May 2020. And in London, in the previous 48 hours, there had not been a single COVID death. Yet we were still in full punishing lockdown. We should not have been in lockdown. And Boris should never have criminalised the free association of people. In my view, it should have remained as guidance, instead of which there were huge fines. You'll remember, Liam, student parties. Students wrote to us, didn't they? Fined thousands of pounds, weren't they? Thousands of pounds. I mean, quite astonishing. Students in Leeds and Nottingham Absolutely dreadful. So on the one hand, you cannot, you cannot fine students for a few people getting together for a few cans of beer in a house in Nottingham and then take part in a garden party. And Boris now, you also you'll remember this, Halligan, there he is eating this huge slice of humble pie in the Commons. He admitted He had attended the work event or what he had thought. Technically, he thought it was within the guidance, although, as Boris said, clearly millions of people would not see it that way. Now, he had attended that party on the 20th of May 2020 for 25 minutes. And and I guess, you know, people's anger, people's righteous anger is based on this fact that that sort of behaviour was criminalised. And also Velma, he'd be impressed with this co-pilot. One final thing. (laughs) I looked up, (laughs) you know me, I'm nothing if not thorough. So the guidance said, meetings in May 2020 were allowed, and I quote, with only absolutely necessary participants and social distancing was required. So now the question is, will Sue Gray, senior civil servant, conducting this review into all the multiple parties, but now especially this one attended by the Prime Minister, will she buy that it was a work event or will she see it as illegal? I think there's a lot in what you say. We're just both fresh as we're recording this from watching Prime Minister Boris Johnson defend himself, his actions at the dispatch box for Mm. Prime Minister's questions. Unusually, before Prime Minister's questions began, he gave a statement where he said, it's a fair cop, I apologise, but I thought this was a, a work event. I thought it counted as a work event, despite the fact that people were asked to bring their own bottle, if you like. I think what we're seeing here is a symptom of the fact that we were criminalised as a people if we acted in the normal way rather than relying on guidance because the weather was really hot then, as per Martin Reynolds, the civil servant's yes. email. And you know, newspapers from that day, I've looked back to, they're full of pictures <laughs> of packed beaches with people who most of the media were calling revelers, you know, a young mum taking her two toddlers to the beach so she doesn't go completely nuts living in a small flat with them, you know. So, but this is the problem. Lots and lots of people were bending slash breaking the rules because that's frankly the way a lot of the country stayed sane. But if you're at the heart of power, you can't do that. I think the, the Prime Minister made a reasonable fist on a very, very difficult, of defending himself on a very, very difficult wicket at Westminster Day today, to mix my sporting metaphors. But I don't think this problem has gone away by any means. And I don't think Boris Johnson will ever actually fully recover from this righteous sense of public anger. Here we are with a prime minister who, under normal circumstances, could say, The UK, given the risks that I've taken, the leadership I've shown, is now in a better position than 
any other major country in the world to haul ourselves out of this pandemic in terms of a combination of our vaccine rollouts, the booster jabs, and indeed the other safeguards and not so tough safeguards that we've implemented. Yet we have built up a lot of herd immunity, a lot of natural immunity, precisely because we had Freedom Day, in my view, Mm. back in July, precisely because we didn't lockdown here in England the way Wales and Scotland did, you know, just in recent weeks and months. You can see that in the numbers. So he's got a really good, under the circumstances, story to tell on his management of COVID, despite lots of lingering anger among some of us about the extent to which lockdown has been used per se. He can also say he has broadly got Brexit done. We'll see what Liz Truss comes up with, given the departure of Lord Frost as the main Brexit negotiator on Northern Ireland. You know, more of that later in the show, of course. The UK is going to be, by all accounts, the fastest growing economy in the G7 this year. Again, that's not to say it's a perfect situation, but there are many positives that the Prime Minister could point to to be building his authority, to be building his party's personality in the run-up to these, as you rightly say, co-pilot, vital May local elections. Instead of that, against some pretty lacklustre political opposition in the form of Keir Starmer and Ed Davey, with all respect, instead of that, you know, I'm asking you at the top of this podcast, can he cling on to power? It's quite astonishing how he's managed to, if you like, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is right. But I'll put this to you. As you know, we've been a bit allergic to conspiracy theories, haven't we? Because we real have. life has seemed quite potty enough. We didn't. We didn't really want. To, we didn't really want to deal with it anymore. Sort of, you know. We didn't have the, lived- the mental capacity, the bandwidth to deal with anything that was even more no. insane than the reality that we're living. <laughs> That's exactly right. So. I'm just going to put it to you, Liam. Is this coincidental? So we are, as you just said, Britain is leading the Northern Hemisphere and outpacing the pandemic. Cases are falling incredibly rapidly now, particularly in the southeast, but everywhere else is catching up. So we're coming out of the pandemic. They're rapidly losing the window in which Sajid Javid can flog his Pfizer vaxes off the back of the lorry. You know, they've probably got a few billion of those stashed away, haven't they? So there's a slight air of desperation that the period of time, I mean, the restrictions lapse on January the 26th. So that's the next big day. They're very soon not going to be able to claim it's a it's an emergency. And once it ceases to be an emergency, they're not going to be able to flog the vaccines, which are for emergency use only. So, co-pilot, we're getting this drip, drip, drip. You'll notice it's a bit like roadside bombs, isn't it? Boris is driving along this highway and every so often somebody or some some people set off another roadside bomb to knock him off track. Are there forces that don't like the fact that the Prime Minister has taken a more relaxed attitude? He failed to follow Sage's dire and completely inaccurate warnings before Christmas that we must shut down on December the 28th. I'm firmly convinced that that was penciled in the diary. He was under huge pressure from people like the great Lord Frost and his backbenchers and COVID recovery group, Steve Baker, all those fantastic people. So are there people now who aren't very happy? Who is it, Liam? Is it embittered Remainers? Is it Dominic Cummings? You know, Revenge is a dish best served over many courses, eating away at his old friend and boss. I mean, something's going on here, isn't it? There's something that doesn't smell quite right. The notion that politics is a contact sport Mm. and is full of extremely devious people doing extremely devious things, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just having a deep understanding of politics as a journalist who's been up close to power for a long time, as have you and I. It strikes me that when you try and understand and examine politics and how the machinery of politics actually works in terms of human nature, however cynical you are, it's never enough. (laughs) Because if people like you and I can think of ways of stitching up people in theory, you can guarantee that people 
will be implementing them in practice. Who do you think it is then, co-pilot? Come on, is it your old lodger, Dominic Cummings? I mean, it's all very interesting, isn't it, this? It is very interesting. I I have no direct knowledge of of, of who it is, though some people have pointed out that a lot of the photos we're seeing, if you understand the geography of number 10 garden and number 11 and, and Downing Street in general, they are taken from a window in number 11. But there are many different people and many different aspects of government who have access to number 11 Downing Street. It just happens to be the Chancellor's residence. So I'm not pointing the finger directly, but I do think we need to understand as journalists and try and convey to the public with a straight face that clearly there is some kind of campaign to, quote, do a bit of a number on Boris's leadership, Mm. because these photos don't leak themselves. These emails don't leak themselves. On that famous Martin Reynolds email, by the way, I'm still a bit perturbed why it doesn't have a date on it. The actual email is a bit weird. But anyway, among those 100 people invited will have been many, many Downing Street staff, some of whom will have been sacked since for various reasons, various embittered people. You know, when you work in a very high pressure government in a fishbowl during a pandemic, Feelings get trampled upon. It's not all nicey-nicey all the time. There are people working at the limits of their ability and beyond under enormous pressure. There are casualties, metaphorically. There are clearly people who are out to make sure that the Boris Johnson premiership is destroyed, and there are people who still are or have been privy to very sensitive information and access to the highest echelons of power. The question for me is, can Johnson style it out? And can the really quite considerable number of positive things he could be using to defend himself in terms of how the country is doing in relative terms after a very difficult period compared to other parts of Europe and indeed the rest of the world, can he use those to trump the general feeling of upset and even disgust? I don't think that's too strong a word. Even among pretty died-in-the-wall Conservative supporters, many of whom have emailed Planet Normal, have had a tsunami, haven't we, of emails about this. Yeah. You can push the British people a long way, as G.K. Chesterton wrote in his incredible poetry, but they don't like being taken for fools and they don't like unfairness. And that's why I say for all the positives about what Boris Johnson's government has achieved, and they have achieved quite a lot, you have to give that to them I don't think they're going to be outweighed by this sense of exasperation. And that's why I don't think he will ever fully recover from where we are now. I think what we've missed so far, Liam, is the the true tragedy at the heart of this, which is how is Carrie going to peel off £112,000 worth of golden wallpaper from number 10? Anyway, no, I mean, I, I'm quite intrigued. I'd really love to have it be a fly on the wall in number 10 because it, it sounds like it's been sort of basically turned into a tandoori house, doesn't it, by the the very expensive interior designer, Lulu Lulu or whatever. They, they've is. moved on from the John Lewis nightmare that <laughs> Theresa May left them. My God, that may or may not be a, a true quote. I think it was in Tatler or, or something. But the fact, the thing about that quote is it's deadly in a sense because... For the vast majority of the country, John Lewis is the place they either shop at or aspire to shop at or wish they could shop at if they had the money. You know, it's it's decent stuff. It may be a bit suburban and a bit humdrum. But the idea of somebody coming into Downing Street and saying, oh, Theresa May, she left a John Lewis nightmare. I mean, I have no idea whether or not anyone close to the prime minister did or didn't say that. There was an anonymous quote along those lines and it stuck because it does have uh, the ring of truth to some degree. Yes, I think if Velma were to put her Sherlock Holmes deerstalker on with a pipe, an attractive prospect, I'm sure you'll agree, co-pilot. Look, Boris, for all his limitations and being a rogue and telling the Commons only a few weeks ago that he was sickened, sickened, I tell you, by the reports of the dreadful parties in Downing Street, which he had strangely forgotten. He'd attended one of them himself. But 
I don't think he's inclined to push through the vaccine passports. And if we were going to go down that slight conspiracy theory route, we could suggest, Copilot, that there might be some quite powerful people who would like us to go down the vaccine passport route. I mean, listeners will probably have seen the very impressive Dr. Steve James this week. Sajid Javid made a visit to King's College Hospital London. He was The health secretary was in, inviting nurses to endorse his idea for mandatory vaccination for health staff. The nurses sat there looking very embarrassed and silent. And Dr. Steve James, who had not only had COVID himself, but has been working in COVID ICU for 20 months, basically said to Sajid Javid, the science isn't good enough for me to get vaccinated. He also said, which was less well reported, Liam, he also said, I haven't seen anyone like me in ICU. All the younger people in ICU are obese. And this was extremely challenging. And I think it sort of moved the dial a bit on the debate because where we are now with Omicron, which is you know, absolutely raging like wildfire, and we are probably really weeks away now, co-pilot, from the end of it in the UK. I mean, that's an astonishing idea. So I just raise the point, put to your learned self, that maybe, just maybe, people are not terribly happy that we may be getting away in the UK without these vaccine passports, which I think certain people would have been very, very happy. Certainly Tony Blair, that that ilk of person, would have been very happy to see us have imposed in this country. I think there are lots of reasons why lots of people want Boris Johnson disgraced and gone from the top of government in the UK. The people who want him gone, the the vested interests tend to be powerful and concentrated and be very, very well connected within government. But the fact is, if somebody in his office, among his advisors, a sort of an Alistair Campbell figure, or even, dare I say it, a Dominic Cummings figure... And I say this, honestly, somebody with really serious political nous, that doesn't necessarily mean they've got lots of common sense, but they've got strategic nous, which Alistair obviously has, which Dominic obviously has, whatever you think of either of those people, that they are both very complicated people. But if either of them had seen this email, oh, let's get together in the garden, I mean, no way, (laughs) no way. Why did nobody just copy to the whole group, you know, copy all. This is madness. It must not happen. (laughs) Clearly, because nobody wants to say boo to a goose in the pressure cooker situation at the top of the apex of power, it seems to me. So I do think it was a ridiculous email to send. I do think the person who sent it, a civil servant, has also got a very serious set of questions to answer. Oh, he's got to go, hasn't he? Martin Reynolds has got to go. I presume that Boris is holding him back. But in the civil service, that means you get, you know, you get demoted upward, don't you? If you if you if you muck <laughs> up one job, you get promoted. I suspect that the Prime Minister is keeping Martin Reynolds back so he can fall on his sword. We've reached the stage where we need a futile gesture. Nothing else will do. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, exactly. We need someone to make the ultimate futile yeah. gesture. But if this Sue Gray woman who's conducting the inquiry, Boris keeps saying, wait for the results of the inquiry, if she finds it wasn't a work event, then he's going to be in a fix, isn't he? He certainly is. He certainly is going to be in a fix. And that's why there's a lot in what you say. The local elections are, in some senses, a referendum on Boris. My real worry is that the danger of replacing Boris is that we get someone even worse. You know, we we think, is he a conservative? Is he this? Is he that? I just think if they pick the wrong leader, and I'm not terribly impressed still by the Labour front bench, and then I think will Starmer potentially win in 2024 because the Conservatives picked the wrong leader? So danger of replacing Boris is we do get someone weaker. The Telegraph brings you a new podcast series, Eyewitnessed History. Harry, will you take Meghan to be your wife? The moments we all remember. I will. Told by Telegraph journalists who were there. You remember how magical and remarkable it all was, and it makes you feel sad that they're no longer a part of the royal family. 
Follow Eyewitness History in the same place you're listening to this. Now, here at Planet Normal, our guests tend to be writers, thinkers, campaigners, those who, a bit like Alison and myself, tend to operate outside the corridors of power. But every now and then we invite onto our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense, a big political beast. Lord David Frost, until relatively recently, was known only to Westminster and Whitehall insiders. Yet once Boris Johnson appointed him as the UK's chief Brexit negotiator, he became a household name. In December, just before Christmas, with various Brexit loose ends still untied, not least the vexed question of the Northern Ireland Protocol, Lord Frost resigned from government. He admires Johnson, he said in his resignation letter, but as a cabinet member, he couldn't go along with Plan B, the tightening of anti-Covid restrictions. Since that resignation, every media organisation in Britain has tried to get David Frost to sit down for a proper interview. But as a self-confessed admirer of Planet Normal... Oh yes, this quietly spoken man with a razor-sharp mind asked specifically to climb aboard the rocket. So on COVID, I think, I mean, that was the reason I resigned. That's what took me out of the government in in December. I didn't agree with the, the Plan B measures, masks, vaccine passports. That's what forced me out. I think, honestly, people are going to look back at the last couple of years globally and see lockdown as a a pretty serious public policy mistake. I think in this country, we've had a slightly less bad form of it than in in others. So we'll probably come out kind of relatively positively. But this is a huge public policy error, I think, is how it's going to be seen. On a scale of 1 to 10, Lord Frost, with 10 being the most, how shocked are you that a country like the UK, which prides itself on, on freedom and consent has followed many other much more authoritarian countries down this path of pretty severe lockdown. So, I mean, if you've got to put a number on it, I'd say say five or six. I think we have shown we've had resistance to to some of this. You know, we have had debate. There has been questioning. There's never, I think, except perhaps in the very early days, been completely wholehearted acceptance of it all across the, the political class. But nevertheless, I have been quite surprised by the way sort of civil society has echoed messages of the the government, the kind of the sort of Warden Hodges figure from Dad's Army has become a, a kind of a thing again, rather than a figure of fun. And I think the way speech on social media has been policed, the willingness to consider new evidence in the whole debate about COVID, uh, you know, seems to have been quite limited. So all that, I think, has been quite surprising to me and worrying. But nevertheless, it's been less bad here than elsewhere. And I think a lot of that's due to the PM's own instincts on this. You've said that the Prime Minister has the right to the best possible advice around him. You, you've said you think there needs to be machinery changes, quotes, in Downing Street, and there probably means to be different voices around him to make sure he gets that best possible advice. Do you think there is a problem in the way Downing Street is run and in the circle of advisers the Prime Minister has surrounded himself with, particularly on COVID? So I don't, I don't think it's about individuals particularly. I think it's about the way the machinery works. And, you know, obviously it wasn't my day job last year, but I've seen a fair bit of the, the material. And I do think that there hasn't been enough internal debate. There hasn't been enough voices challenging the epidemiologists. You know, there hasn't been enough of a voice of the, the economy in this and an attempt to get to grips with the, the trade-offs. And you need to create a machine around you that's going to do that if you're going to, to have good decisions. And I have seen the Prime Minister kind of groping for that information and it not, not being there. And I think he's not necessarily been well served by everybody around him in, in developing that. How did you feel when you read either recently or at the time, the email from a senior civil servant, Martin Reynolds, asking Downing Street staff to make the most of the lovely weather in the number 10 garden when the rest of us in it together were locked down. So I don't know anything about the, you know, the email or the, the party. I was doing other things. But I do think there's an important point here, which is that 
And I mean, I learned it from personal experience. You know, when the, the EU talks were over at the end of last year, I went on a Zoom call with a lot of sort of college friends and things like that. And they told me they hadn't been in the office for the entire year. And that's what made me realise my experience of meeting people, going to talks, running a negotiation, seeing people was completely different from, from most other people with office jobs. And I do think the fact that in number 10, the teams managing COVID, not just in number 10, the fact that they were in the office and seeing people meant that you, that you tended to forget what life was like for everybody else because to you it seemed a bit normal. And I do think that meant we were more ready to reach for sort of lockdown and coercive things than we might have been in, in other circumstances. So I think it did affect policymaking probably in that way. But the PM's going to take, is taking serious political flack for that email that Martin Reynolds sent and the notion that he knew about the party, maybe even have been at the party. I mean, these things seem trivial, but a lot of the country is very, very, very angry about this. Well, I, I totally get why they are, and I think they have reason to be. Obviously, Sue Gray is looking into this, and there couldn't be a better person, I think, to do it. And I suppose we'll have to wait and see what what she concludes. I think the important thing is is looking forward now. And, you know, I'm a bit worried that... You know, the debate at the moment about COVID is about, okay, we've got a mild variant, so it's okay, and we can all go back to normal. Well, you know, maybe the next one won't be. And I don't want to find us, I hope we won't be in the same debate about, you know, do we go back to lockdowns if the next one is, is more dangerous? I would like to see the government ruling out lockdowns for the future, repealing the legislation, ending them. We can't afford it. It doesn't work. Stop doing COVID theatre, vaccine passports, masks, stuff that doesn't work and focus on what does work. So we're ready. The next one is worse. You know, stuff like ventilation, antivirals, proper hospital capacity managing it properly. That's what we need to be focusing on going forward. Do you agree with the Great Barrington Declaration, Shinetra Gupta, Martin Koldorf, some of the world's leading epidemiologists, Jay Bhattacharya, they look for age-discriminated shielding as opposed to across-the-board lockdown. Did they have a point? Well, I think they did have a point. And, you know, I'm not an advocate particularly of, of that as opposed to to other things. I'm just opposed to lockdowns because I think they're, they're sort of inhuman. But I do think that one of the things that really began to trouble me, one of the first things that began to trouble me was the way that the Great Barrington Declaration was sort of dismissed you know, as kind of, it's unreasonable to talk like this. These people don't know what they're talking about. It's unreasonable, it's wrong. And that, to me, was the first sign that something was going wrong in the, the normal give and take on public debate in this question. The cost of living crisis is now very much the lingua franca of politics. Everyone can see this kind of triple whammy that's going to face the country, hitting ordinary households hard. In April, inflation, tax rises, energy price rises. Do you think it would be worth maybe delaying some of the COP26 agenda, even reining back some of the COP26 agenda, given that it's widely accepted that 25% of our energy bills now are subsidies for renewable energy? Well, I do. I think, you know, to, to be clear about things, I, I think climate change is a significant problem. I just don't think it's the, necessarily the most significant problem that the country faces at the moment. And I do feel we are rushing at some of this stuff. We're bringing in measures that are sort of unnecessary, too soon, technologies that aren't ripe, trying to pick winners, trying to subsidise technologies that may not be the best way forward. And all that is increasing costs on, on individuals. I would not run at it. I would pace it a bit if we must set ourselves this net zero objective. And surely we should shift taxation, or should we, away from people's energy bills and to general taxation, if we are going to make this move towards lower carbon emissions, because there will be upfront costs. So I think it's a general principle that if the government's supporting something for the public good, it should be done through general taxation, not on the costs of, of particular things. But as I said, I'm not in favour of increasing taxation. And that's one of the reasons why I think we should not rush out this subsidising technologies that are extremely high cost and as far as I can see, don't necessarily work very well yet. Are you surprised how far and how fast the Prime Minister has gone down this green route, given 
the experiences of David Cameron, which Boris Johnson will have been watching closely. He ended up calling it famously green crap. What do you think's compelling the Prime Minister to go at this agenda so hard? So I am a bit surprised, but equally it's part of the the sort of international discourse. You know, kind of respectable, right-thinking leaders around the world espouse green politics and net zero. And if you don't, you know, there's thought to be something sort of dodgy about you. And I think that is part of it. I think also, again, comes back to what I was saying earlier. There isn't really any debate about this in this country about this. If you choose to say, maybe we should take it a bit more slowly, or maybe I'm not sure we're doing this in quite the right way, you know, where's the constituency in Parliament that's going to support you? You know, this country takes the worst decisions when everybody in Parliament agrees on things. And that has been the case on on climate change for some years now. So, you know, we really need better debate about it if we get the right solutions. I agree with you. A climate of opinions being created, not least by much of the media, that unless you adhere to this green agenda, you're not a member of polite society. On the other hand, I do think something's changed in the last few weeks and months. It's now completely respectable to talk about the impact of these green policies on the finances of ordinary households, of hardworking men and women, of pensioners who may have to choose once again between heating and eating. Surely the Prime Minister is going to have to retreat in some areas on this green agenda. So I think he, he probably, I mean, who knows? I think he probably is going well, to Well, you probably know more than anyone find, else, Lord Frost, um, with respect. That's why you're here. <laughs> the government probably is going to have to do something about this in the next few months. I think people have been sold the view to quite recently that you can do net zero without it really costing anything. That's obviously never been true. And that's now becoming obvious. And I think we are going to see better debates and we are going to see some pushback against this and we'll get better solutions. Uh, as a result. Just before we move on to Brexit and in particular the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a subject that, well, I say I've studied it very closely. You've lived it and been at the coalface of the negotiations. But just before we get on to that, do you think the departure of Dominic Cummings, Lord Frost, was a net subtraction to the strength of this government? I do, actually. I mean, I'm a huge admirer of the the PM, as I hope is is clear in many ways. I'm a huge admirer of Dom as well. I don't agree with him on everything. And I think we've disagreed on some of the, obviously, the aspects of the way we've handled the, the pandemic. But I think his strategic brain and clarity of thought and ability to kind of focus on goals was and is really important. He's not the only person who could do that, but I'm I'm a big admirer of him. It's a shame he left. That's what you're saying. Well, so sometimes people are the right people for sometimes, you know, one moment and not not for another moment. And, you know, different sorts of skills are, diff- are required at, at different times. But I, I do think to run the number 10 machine effectively, you need to have somebody who is focusing on the goals and trying to keep all the means in line and doing the right things. And that was what Dom Cummings did for a time. And it needs to be done all the time. And of course, he advocated very strongly Whitehall reform, a kind of remoulding, a remaking of British statecraft, of the nuts and bolts of of government, basically. Yeah, and I very much agree with him on that. I think, you know, if we've learned everything, anything from the pandemic, it's that, you know, when the Prime Minister pulls a lever, it didn't always work. And I think serious state reform at the centre, serious capacity reform in the civil service. I mean, the way it does HR, the way departments are structured, you know, is Northcote Trevelyan the right? The traditional mid-19th century model of Whitehall. The split between the politicians and the civil servants, which is, you know, other countries don't have in quite the same way. I think all this needs to be really looked at again properly. I don't think it's working. Let's move on to Brexit. And I'll I'll start this section by asking you if I may, Lord Frost. You'll remember that BBC documentary and very informative it was too, about what was going on in Brussels during the Brexit negotiations. Personal insults were thrown at you and other members of the British government. How did you feel when Michel Barnier, your opposite number at the time, negotiating on behalf of the European Union, made clear on camera, albeit he probably forgot the camera was there, that targeting Ireland and the 
the, the cracks, if you like, between GB and Northern Ireland, the long-standing suspicions and concerns, much improved since the Good Friday Agreement. Enormous progress has been made since 98, which I know means an awful lot to you. It means an awful lot personally to me as well. It was clear, wasn't it, that Michel Branier and Brussels were deliberately picking at that scab, if you like, in order to try and get negotiating leverage over the UK to convey the idea that Brexit was chaos, possibly to deter other countries from even thinking about it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was surprised he said it, but I don't think anyone was in any doubt that it was. But how did it make you feel when you heard him saying it? I felt, as I so often did in these negotiations, that, you know, we weren't being taken seriously, that... You know, the EU didn't look on us as not quite a province, but a territory in which they expected to exercise exceptional influence one way or another. And that's not how we saw it. And I wasn't happy about it. Doesn't it go beyond that? Isn't it about more than just disrespect to deliberately focus on an area of policymaking where the UK, where the Republic of Ireland, where... Yeah, many, many people have put an enormous effort over many years, risked their lives and literally died in the process. If you think about some of the political giants in Northern Ireland who made the Good Friday Agreement possible to deliberately target that, doesn't that go beyond just disrespect? So I think it does. I don't, I don't think everybody in the, the kind of EU team and the EU policymaking necessarily saw it like that. I think a lot of them didn't really realise the complexities of Northern Ireland and are only now realising what they've got themselves into. But yeah, I think it was it was quite shocking. And I think one of the, the problems we had when we came in in 2019 is that, you know, a lot of the, the damage had been done. A lot of the positions of principle had already been conceded on that. And that's one of the reasons why we, you know, have a, a somewhat unsatisfactory protocol as a result. Let me ask you something directly, if I may, Lord Frost. You were, for much of your career, a foreign office animal. You were our ambassador to Denmark, no less. You were, let me get this right, the FCO's EU director and director for Europe and international trade, then at the Department for Business Innovation and Skills. You really get Whitehall. You were a proper insider. Were there people in Whitehall who were deliberately trying to scupper Brexit? If there were... I never met them. I never saw any sabotage. I don't believe there was sabotage. But I do think that, you know, the kind of intellectual midpoint of the civil service on this was, you know, the European was a, European Union is a jolly good thing and it was a very bad thing that we were leaving it. And it took a long time to kind of move the system around to getting it in the right place. But sabotage or undermining, I don't think so, no. We almost didn't have Brexit. It's only because 28... 28- Tory MPs, the so-called Spartans, were very, very, very unreasonable in the eyes of much of the country. That we actually got Brexit done. So I, I totally agree, and I think that you know when we came in in 2019, you know we faced a situation where a lot of the points of principle on Northern Ireland had been conceded, and where the constitution was being shredded. And um, we're extremely worried. We're not going to get Brexit at all in any form, and that's why we we took the strategic decision that it must be delivered. It must be delivered as quickly as possible. It must be delivered in a way that gives the country free choice about the future. And we had to deprioritize other things to get that done. And in the end, we did get it done. But I think, you know, there, there obviously was an attempt to stop Brexit, but I believe it was the political establishment in cooperation with, you know, some in the European Union who were trying to sort of have a second run at this. The Northern Ireland Protocol is in place. Many members of the unionist community would say that given that it changes the constitutional reality on the ground in Northern Ireland without a referendum, it actually contradicts the Good Friday Agreement. Have they got a point? So I think it it depends how it's being implemented. One of the things we brought into the protocol that gets forgotten is the right for 
the the Assembly in Northern Ireland to vote in four years' time as to whether they want it to continue or not. And it ends unless it is agreed that it should continue. And that's a big difference to the, the old backstop yeah. and what we what we replace. The default is it expires unless they vote actively for yeah, it. Absolutely. Completely different from the backstop. But it only works with very gentle handling and it hasn't had that. Yeah, the EU's been doing more checks, more checks at LAN be- between GB and Northern Ireland than they've been doing across the whole of the rest of the European Union put together. How reasonable is that? It, ma- it makes no sense. It cannot work. And when we negotiated in 2019, it was not, we didn't think it was going to be. That, you know, If they insist on it being the goods moving into Northern Ireland being like any external border of the the EU, then it won't work. That's not what the protocol was designed to do. If you if they insist on that, then it won't work. I mean, I actually think, I mean, it's obvious now the protocol's going to have to be changed or replaced. Do you think Liz Truss will ev- ev- evoke Article 16? I don't know. Should she? I think it's, it definitely uh, has to be a real option for us. I think it's always best to do things by negotiation if you if you can, obviously. But I think, you know, the best thing would be if the EU could see what, what to many of us is obvious, that the protocol isn't working, has to be changed significantly or must be replaced. And if they want stability and they want a good relationship with us, they should negotiate to put into place something better. And I, I've never understood why that is such a difficult proposition for them, unless you think they're still just trying to make difficulties for us. And they are, aren't they? I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Well, it's beginning to change, you know, as some of the, the leaders in the EU move on. And maybe after the French elections, they might start being well, reasonable I mean, now? I think it's playing a part. All these things playing a part. I think it's, it's gradually, the atmosphere is improving. But I, think, I still think there are people who, you know, a lot of the EU is invested in Brexit failing. And, you know, anything they can do without causing catastrophic damage to the relationship that makes it less likely that we'll succeed, then they're going to do it. Let's talk a little bit about you, Lord Frost, as we conclude. You're a scholarship boy. You went to an independent school off the back of that scholarship. You're very much a a striver, if you like. Alison and I have always seen you as somebody who's a sort of planet normal person. And you've been kind enough to tell me that you have indeed been enjoying the fruits of our labours here on Planet Normal in recent months. Absolutely. You know, the podcast, one of the things that sort of kept us sane, I think, through this period. Us, the British government, or uh, us, me, uh, me, my Towers. family, Prost Towers, <laughs> uh, kept us sane through this period that has been extraordinarily unnerving for many of us. So it was a great voice of, of sanity. Thank you. Well, that's very kind of you. We could only do it with the support of colleagues at The Telegraph, of of course. I'd certainly want to put that on record, and I know Alison would as well. But it is nice to hear that serious people like you are listening to the podcast within, within government because we know many ordinary people living their lives are certainly listening to it as well. Lord David Frost, thanks for joining us on the Rocket of Right Thinking. Thank you. It's been great. Good talking to you. Thanks. And you can watch the full-length version of that interview with Lord David Frost on The Telegraph's YouTube channel for free. You don't need to be a subscriber. That was about 20 minutes, but the full interview runs to about 30, 35 minutes. So do have a listen there. Of course, once you get to the end of Planet Normal. Wow, Liam, I really love listening to the two of you speaking. And then the cherry on the cake, Lord David Frost, a fan of the rocket of right thinking. That was lovely to hear. Although I think slightly disconcerting to think that a member of the cabinet was relying on the co-pilots to keep them safe. He's not the only one. <laughs> there, there are others I'm just not allowed to disclose who they are. No, I know. But you think what's going on in the cabinet that they're having to actually surreptitiously listen in. No, and then there are other people in the cabinet who've told me the same thing. I know. I'm sure they are. But that was that was really wonderful to hear. And also really touching to think that some of our discussions, some of the facts and the stories we foregrounded could have been part of Lord Frost's thinking and may even have inspired his principled walkout. You know, Liam, he says things in a mild and understated way. Of course, he's a diplomat. He was a diplomat. 
but they are quietly devastating things that he said to you. He said he definitely resigned because of COVID. He didn't agree with Plan B, with masks, with vaccine passports. He said that people will look back on lockdown and see it as a major public policy error, although he had the caveat, didn't he, that probably because of the Prime Minister's more libertarian instincts, the UK, or certainly England, would come out of it better than most other countries. But so many things leapt out at me. But something that you and I have touched on, we've it's niggled away at us. He said that working in number 10, so many of them were out of touch with the life that ordinary people were living under lockdown. They were going to meetings, they were in their limos and so on. And he said, we tended to forget what life was like for people. And he said that made it easier. Reaching for lockdown for these coercive measures made it easier because the people instituting them were not living under them. I think that's right. And I'd like to, just as David Frost has thanked you and me, I'd like to thank our our listeners and say this. I don't think the British media class has covered itself in glory in the last couple of years. In fact, I think collectively we've completely mucked it up. We've fluffed it. I think an awful lot of the public are concerned and upset that the broadcasters in particular, but also some of the papers haven't been more questioning of the official narrative. If you watch the political briefings at number 10, the on-camera ones, the questions have always tended to be, why aren't you locking down more, harder, faster, rather than questioning lockdown from first principles, while supporting vaccination, of course, as you and I have done on Planet Normal. It hasn't always been easy for us. We've taken a lot of flack from a lot of people within journalism. Have we, co-pilot? Have people been disparaging about us? I, I have failed to notice Out that. Out there, Alison Pearson. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I'd say this, The Telegraph has allowed Planet Normal to flourish and grow. It certainly has. And so chapeau to The Telegraph, I'll say that again. It does feel like a bit of a moment, this, for Planet Normal. And as Lord Frost said, he has listened to it. And I know he's listened to it avidly for weeks and months. So there you have it. There you have, not to over-dramatise this, but it's worth pointing out in these times when public confidence is frayed, to say the least. There you have the golden thread of democracy. You have ordinary people writing speculative emails they don't even know are being read. They are, by the way to two distant columnists on a newspaper who do a podcast. We then do the podcast. Cabinet ministers then listen to it. They then think, read, interrogate, ask questions within government. And when government conduct reaches a point, they resign in a high-profile way that puts serious pressure on the ultimate decision-maker, the Prime Minister. I think objectively, Alison, that's what's happened here. And I think it's all to the good. Makes me feel quite emotional, actually. I mean, something, Liam, that really struck me watching the BBC News, which obviously has become a bit of a bete noire of mine, was that in an attempt to bring down Boris, and you know how strongly I feel about the obscenity of that garden party. Only because you didn't get an invite. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Lost in the post, lost in the post. But, you know, so there they are suddenly wheeling out. Oh, goodness me, look, there were lots of people harmed by lockdown. Oh, look at this poor old lady over here. Oh, look at this person who couldn't be with her dying father. And I thought, you are literally now finally reporting on the tragic consequences of lockdown purely to weaponise them against the Prime Minister because he happened to be having a party, not because you should have been doing that job as journalists, pointing out that the adverse consequences, which, as we know from Planet Normal, are becoming more and more apparent by the day. And you'll see, Lynn, that someone had said on Twitter, oh, you know, wasn't it easy now to see retrospectively all the consequences? And I actually answered and I said, well, funnily enough, on Planet Normal, we don't need to look retrospectively at the consequences of lockdown because day after day, week after week, we reported, didn't we, 
those stories, Robert Styler, the death of Joy Stokes, all the people, you know, Holly, the district nurse, all the people who shared and confided their stories in us. And I do think that that's a source of pride. And if we played even a small role in informing a marvellous politician, God, we need more politicians, I think, like David Frost. But that's a tiny, fluttery little feather in our cap, co-pilot. Talking about the wonderful input from our listeners, now on to our emails. Please do keep them coming. We love reading them and we learn so much from you. And as we've discussed in the past, we often lift, <laughs> shamelessly lift things. None of that. Our- we, you do that. I don't do that, Alison. <laughs> and it's not just us that loves reading them. Apparently cabinet ministers like reading them as well, or at least listening to the ones we read out. Hello, Pretty Patel. Hello, Liz Truss. I know we know they're we know you're all listening secretly. Anyway, this is from Joshua. Lovely email from Joshua. Hello, Planet Normal. Hello, Joshua. When I sit in a crowded classroom with a hot, steamy mask on my face, I have to wonder what has happened to the common sense of the government. In our classrooms, there are five windows wide open and two carbon dioxide monitors. I ask, is this to protect us because the teachers are not wearing a mask? I have to question the authority of the teacher unions to negatively affect my education. Having recently had COVID, I can vouch that it is fine. I had no symptoms and no cough. The data says that one third of us have no symptoms. Well, how mild does it have to be then? When will we be able to continue our lives? I love this, Liam. In my school, all the current black market is trading in hand warmers. (laughs) Nice to see the young people are being enterprising in these dark times. What I also want to know, says Joshua, is why on the back of my telegraph is there an advertisement saying, because two doses does not give you enough protection against Omicron. I am sick of the fear mongering and the data. Please continue to impart your sanity. Here's one from Alex. We have a political, public health and media class that went out of its way to sow fear to demand the most draconian population-wide restrictions ever imposed in a democracy and which demonised even well-qualified and reasonable challenge. Any hesitation about the necessity or proportionality of the COVID rules, any questioning whether law was an appropriate response over medical guidance was met with charges of COVID deniers, granny killers, you're literally killing people. Loved ones separated, the elderly in isolation, children banned from schools, playgrounds taped over, businesses shuttered, patients kicked out of hospital. We surrendered every aspect of our autonomy, writes Alex, our basic freedoms, our fundamental human rights, because we were told they simply weren't safe. The people telling us that felt safe enough to exempt themselves as essential workers. And now we know they unofficially exempted themselves when they wanted a little fun. They did so knowing they were at minimal risk from COVID, but deliberately maintained the fiction that 67 million people were all equally at risk and responsible for the health of their neighbours by staying at home. This is no minor betrayal. This is animal farm brought to life. And every single person attending gatherings or garden parties in and around Downing Street, the civil service and Whitehall needs to be named, investigated and potentially sacked or referred to the police. Gosh. And Alan says, I have not forgotten my cousin's voice shaking with fear as she asked us not to talk too loudly when we had a socially distanced tea with her in her garden. My cousin was born just before World War II. The very war that was fought to prevent such evil regimes taking power in this country. And here's a quick one from Warren. The question now, co-pilots, is what is best for the country? As much as I despise Johnson, I wonder if we would be better off if a chastened Boris started governing like a genuine conservative, dropping the eco-lunacy, stopping the socialist tax and spend agenda and rescinding all the COVID laws and restrictions. Is it too late for him to regain credibility and trust or can only a new PM make the changes needed? That's exactly how I feel, Warren. Well said. And Sharon says... It wasn't what I was doing on the 20th of May 2020. It was what I wasn't doing. I wasn't seeing my elderly parents. I wasn't letting my only child go to school to learn, to thrive with her friends. I wasn't running my devastated business. The whole episode has created an environment in which bullying can thrive. Police telling pensioners to move apart on a bench. 
Currently, my daughter is strongly reprimanded if she is in school without a mask on, inside or outside. One thing's for sure, the whole lot of them can go take a running jump. So say all of us, Sharon. And finally, here's Judith. We took the family to the Downs in Bristol as we live in a city centre flat. We needed some green space. I too felt guilty, with that guilt exacerbated by the number of police cars driving around the Downs. After a while, though, writes Judith, I stopped feeling guilty and I got angry and I'm still angry. Lots of people feel like that, co-pilot. Imagine remembering that surreal time when you felt guilty, getting in your car just to drive to a wood. Extraordinary. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, listened to by many cabinet ministers, apparently. (laughs) Email of the week, Liam. There are so many great emails. I really think we've had more emails this week than any other week. But let's let's go with the next generation. Let's give it to Joshua. Yay! So Joshua, email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and put in the title to your email, Mug Winner. And a rare as rocking horse teeth, Planet Normal Mug will be winging its way Joshua's soon going to be a hand warmer multi-millionaire if you enjoy Planet Normal do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify we love reading them because mainly you say nice things it really helps other people to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow and as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view we thank our producers Isabel Bouchard Louisa Wells Elliot Lampitt our editor Theodora Leloudis Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.